pretty cool. Stay calm, dude. It's a great, it's a great setup. And I like that you guys have put like the, the matting here to try to like muffle the echo and this stuff. Is like, uh, it's a Dun beautiful room, so man. Duncan and John like really know what they're doing. Yeah. So we drew yeah, it up, looks like, great. We drew up this game plan. It but, sounds good too, man. Like I, I mean, yeah. when I listened to it, it was in my ear. It wasn't like um, it wasn't like I just had it playing on speaker. And it sounds good. Yeah, I mean yeah. that makes well such done. a big difference when you listen to an amateur podcast or interviewing people on Zoom. It's hard. They don't have their own audio settings right. Well, it doesn't almost, work anymore. Like they ten years ago, people might have done it because there weren't that many podcasts and like they hadn't upped their game. But now everybody has to have you know. Even if it's great, you would never know because you can't make it for five minutes. You're just yeah. like I can't listen to yeah, this. Yeah, I'm out. Yeah, I'm out. Yeah. Actually, that's a that's a good thing because some of those people are all potential clients of Amy's and mine for our new company. Yes, I can't wait to hear yeah. about. Where do you have people recording? I mean, for our podcast, it's been all remote, but we'll usually book a studio in their city and we'll have them go, and then we'll and then we'll go to one here and we'll book yeah. time there. I have a little setup at home, like in my what's closet. The, what, that I was using what studio for do you go to here? You know, uh, Digital Island, which is in uh, Chelsea. There's also one called CDM Studios, which is in uh, Hell's Kitchen. Okay. You know, so I'll go there, but I'll, I've got my NPR set up at home still in my closet with literally a blanket draped over my head Yeah. on either side. Um, and it sounds great, but I was recording. It's more comfortable. I was recording in my remote office, which has, I think I had 18-foot ceilings. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> and my it sounded voice, like you were speaking into a canyon. My voice bouncing off of the wooden desk in front of me. And then hitting the ceiling and then hitting the mic. Yeah. And so it was like always very echoey, shitty. And Duncan's like, dude, can you just put a pillow in front of the mic? Yeah. I'm like, I can't. My computer is there. <laughs> I can't see that. I can't you see my computer. You gotta put like a huge velvety blanket over the entire setup. It works. You I've know? seen that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's what I did for a year and a half when NPR went remote. That's crazy. That's crazy. Dude, we went home on a. Wait, hang on one sec. How's his, uh, his mic is good? Yeah. Yeah. Did you check Mike? Michael? I'm on, 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 on. Unless okay. you're just like particularly fired up. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I am. Are the level? Do the levels just blow out all the time on this podcast? Like all the time? Like are you just sitting there stewing it, in anger? I, uh, I keep it on the low side. Just I keep it on the low side. It does. It's because of me. <laughs> I own it. Uh, it happens to me too, man. So is anybody in that studio there? You know, it's right across the park from us. Oh, in NPR? The no, the office is still closed because they're they're renovating. They're they're installing new studios and stuff until next year. Okay, so, so all of their on-air people are, or most of their on-air people are remote? Yeah, remote. Wild. They have, like, office manager type people, like, going in and keeping tabs on the place, but everybody's gone. I mean, look, this is, like, part of the big story, right? They're taking advantage of this moment to install better stuff, to yes. like spend money on the place, and, you know. If you're going to be in the game, back, like, then now is a good time know? because there's nobody in the way. Yeah, it's a pause, and everybody had to do it. You know? I mean, that's what we did. That's what we did here. I said to myself, all right, um, I'm uh, three years into a 10-year lease. I can't get out of it. I don't want to get out of it. Yeah. But it may be years before we start regularly having in-person client meetings in the conference room and even employee meetings in the conference room. Right. So what can we do to actually make this something? Yeah. Like to, to make this pay off. We're in New York City. We have tons of people we like that we want to talk to. Like, let's do something. So then Duncan was basically like, yeah, we could do this, but I can't do it myself. 
Yeah. So we, we found John and these guys built this. And you got to invest. I mean, you got to get the equipment. You have to hire people know. who know what they're doing. I like, stole all this to, shit. Yeah. That, wasn't, that wasn't a problem. <laughs> From NPR right across the park. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No problem. <laughs> Nobody's come, come back to notice uh, if they're there or not. So I only had like partial approval from Barry. So I got <laughs> so I got all the sound buffering stuff purple because that's his favorite color. And I figured like when he comes in and sees it, he's not going to be that mad because- He hasn't seen it yet? He's, he doesn't know what this is? He's like Prince. No, he's seen it since. <laughs> but I'm saying we started putting up sound buffering equipment in the conference room. Like I was just like, well, if I get it purple, yeah. like, it'll take a little bit of the edge off. So- um, he can come in and vibe out with you guys sometimes with all the purple. Yeah. 100%. No, it's listen, it's it was a big investment and it still is a big investment, but we're having a lot of fun doing it. So, now this is Compound and Friends. Was that inspired by Conan O'Brien needs a friend? Like you invite me over and now you're hoping I go to your barbecues and stuff or what's You know the- what? <laughs> That's a good question. Nobody ever asked me that, but somebody asked me if we copied Howard Lindzen cuz his podcast is Panic with Friends. And we definitely didn't do that on purpose, but now that I think about it, is that Howard? Yeah. <laughs> now that I now that I think about it, like it was subliminal, may, maybe subconsciously, yeah, I, a little bit copied, but that's okay. Howard rips me off all the time. That's 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 the way the thing works. That's yeah. how creativity works. Yeah. So yeah. if I, if I if I subconsciously ripped off Lindsay, it's all not right. it's not well, the end of the world. Keep inviting me to your slumber oh, parties. Oh shit! Your slumber parties for day traders. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's the, the next <laughs> podcast is the slumber party. How, how'd we close? Not terrible. All right. Did you get out of everything? I'm good. One short. Did you get Josh out of everything? Yeah. Did you get me out Dude, of all my at, stuff? Look at Palladium. That's remember so, the show was the hottest thing? That's the most bearish. That's, Do you remember that? Yeah. Look at Alcoa. Down 11% today. And you know, what's, you know what sucks about all those commodity-related stocks? They were all breaking out. Look at Copper. And it reversed in two days. Yeah. Copper's having its worst week in a while. Good. You it's know enough. what I haven't checked in a while is lumber because it was uh, collapsing that, earlier yeah, this year. 70, Crash. Yeah, 70%. Right. Crash. Yeah. It turns out that shit actually literally grows on trees. <laughs> <laughs> like actually. <laughs> they found a better way to cut down the tree. Did, did they draft Paul Bunyan back into surface? When you were right? at FT Alphaville, I could see you writing, writing a headline like, Lumber prices crash as oh. Wall Street realizes they grow this more. This stuff grows on trees, right? <laughs> Wall Street joins. What is that? Is that a that's lumber, lumber chart? That's lumber. Oh, wow. That's not what you want to say. Wait, is that at the pandemic low? If, you, if, you're, if you're a buyer of uh, yeah. houses, that's good. That's terrific. Um, so, yeah. so, oh, man. So when does that if show up? you're a home in builder, the, that's awesome. When does that show up in the inflation data? That collapse in building material price. Well, the prices aren't coming back down, though. That's the thing. Yeah. KB Homes, the CEO. At the retail level, the, they're not coming back down. Well, but the wholesale level. Fine, but the margins are all there. They literally said you raise prices. What's going to happen as lumber came back down? Right. He said we'll take it to margin, and that, my friends, is why you want to buy stocks. This is still a demand story, though, right? And it's going to take a while. Well, the lumber was for, a supply story. The lumber was a supply story, but I think the fact that prices still haven't Wait, adjusted, wh- even though why was the lumber's lumber- down and house construction is Wait up. a minute. Like, why was lumber a supply story? Because the the mills were shut off for yeah. months. That's all that was That's about? That's all that was. Yeah. And, and so right. demand is still as hot as it was two months ago. Maybe it cooled off a little bit on the housing side, but the, it's this, the supply came back on. Yeah. So all the, oh, it's transitory. Well, I mean- the. The, it is transitory. The, the price increases of How lumber was- tra- Hold on. Hey. The price increase of lumber was transitory. What's not transitory is home prices. They're not coming back down with lumber coming back down. And that's where people get confused and talk past each other. 
I think home prices also are going to turn over a little bit. They are soon, and there are. It's already starting to happen. Do you yeah. see the? Did you see the the starts half, numbers? Half the of permits the, numbers. The, the twenty cities now. in uh, Case Shiller. I think in yeah. half of the twenty cities, prices are easing. Yeah. So let me, let me pat myself on the back a little bit. I know it's anecdotal, <laughs> but a few a few weeks ago, I wrote a post that. Last year, if you went on Zillow in my town, Josh and I live in the same town, you saw like six red dots, 10 red dots. There was no houses for sale. And now there's like 300 dots. Everyone is, is selling. And all over my town, I'm seeing price cuts because people are coming listing their 2,000 square foot house for $830,000. It's like, okay, that's not, that's not the pandemic anymore. Yeah. Um, and so I'm seeing price cuts all over the place. Some now, of this I'm, stuff is localized. Though, totally, right? totally. I'm not saying that yeah. my town is, is representative of the entire nation, but- um, I still think there is a limit to how f- far prices can come down because it's still, in my opinion, a demographic story more than anything. 70 million but people at the like same me that, time, buy, that are willing to buy. Right. At, at the same time, though, a lot of people who had the financial wherewithal to buy an $800,000 house, they shot their shot already. It's not an infinite amount. Correct. Yeah, that's, so, right. that's right. So like the people who had no problem getting a loan in 2020 and definitely wanted to buy a house and get out of a city. They did. They did that. And yeah. and that ends at a certain well, wait, point. Well, those were the most aggressive buyers. Correct. Yeah. So now you ha- you still have buyers yeah, now, yeah. but they're not like salivating no. just because you yeah. put a house. No, they're up good. For sale. They're, they're they're good now. Like now there's more supply. So it's making supply supply cut up to demand. It stands to reason, right? Yeah. And but by the way, because I, I can I can bring in a, a little bit of anecdata myself. Hello. Right? I mean, I keep up with my cousins in Tampa on this because they're homeowners. And red just hot, a few uh, weeks Tampa, ago, red hot. Yeah. And even a few weeks ago, getting unsolicited buyers, right? People literally calling them up, knocking on. Their are door, you for sale? You know. Yeah, but and their point is like, we would love to do this. But where are we going to go? Like they have families, right? They would have to buy something. They they would have to buy something else at a higher price. You know, also inflated. So you know, I think a lot more people are doing what Michael's doing now, which is like they're taking some money out of the like higher equity value, right? right? Like they're taking some money out of their house, they're refinancing things like that, uh, rather than actually selling. Which is why I I think a lot of this like just has a limit to like. So this this is where the Fed contributes. To inequality, not that they're doing it purposefully, but like my house went up in value by thirty percent, and I'm just like it's just it's just it's just money that's been created out of thin air. So I'm like, oh wait a minute, I want that money. Give me that yeah. money. Thank you very much. And now I get to do with it what I want. How Some do you, kinds how do you of know your, How do you know your Middle house went up in price by thirty percent? Yeah, because I got an. Appra- I think it did, but cause, I, cause, I'm asking because <laughs> I got an appraisal, which is a total racket. The guy came and took seven pictures. He's like, "Yep, your house is now worth." But I know it is because I know it is. You got an appraisal for the loan. Literally, I said, yeah. So okay. so now my LTV is good. I'm exactly where I was. My minimum payment went down by 30%, and I get all this money in my pocket to do with How's what your I want. gamma? Okay. Hot. <laughs> Here's an this, interesting point about inequality in housing, though. This house right? is just leaking gamma yeah. right now. It's unbelievable. Um, all right. Big John, set us off. All right, coming in with three claps. We're just starting now? <laughs> yeah. After all those pearls we that just was, gave everyone, the, now the, we're starting? That was the pre-show. Oh, oh no, that all, all right. makes it in. <laughs> okay. There's no, like, official start time. I'm on the Friends, so 12. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by me, Michael Batnick, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's The Compound and Friends is brought to you by Polymarket. So I made my first bet this week. 
And I looked at, uh, will Joe Biden be president of the USA on September 30th, 2021? And uh, you know what? Why would I want to bet on something like that, Duncan? I mean, I'm not an anarchist. I'm a patriot. So I didn't do that. What I did was this. Okay. Will Cardano, the cryptocurrency, will Cardano break $3 before January 1st, 2022? Duncan, is Cardano the one that JC was pounding the table on? Yeah. And he was 100% right. He was 100% right. So I said yes. Now, check this out. The odds, uh, it was 56% said yes, 44% said no. I put 150 bucks on this wager. If I win, it'll pay out $260. So 73% return on my investment. Now, I was thinking about this. Well, what if I just put 150 bucks in Cardano and it goes to $3? No, no, no. In that case, I would only have $215. So yeah, if I lose, this will go to zero, but my upside is higher. So that's what I did. I bet on Cardano to breach $3 before January 2020-22. Who knew? I'm a Cardano bull. Let's go. To learn more, go to polymarket.co slash compound show to bet on your beliefs. Oh, shit. Fire. Yo, hit the hit the applause. What's up? Hey, that's an air people horn. Don't, people don't even know. Respect. Oh, you can't say fire. It's for emojis. No, but... All right. Fire emoji. There you go. People don't even know how smart... Uh, you are Cardiff, and I'm so excited to have you on the show because we really haven't had anyone smart yet. So, <laughs> wait, Allison was on last week. All of your Doug Bonaparte, guests. Doug Bonaparte is very smart. Doug's not and smart. Allison yes, is smart. Is. Allison is smart. All of our guests, JC is smart. All of our guests are smart. I'm smart in my own way. You are like <laughs> genuinely a very, very uh, smart person. I don't mean that like, oh, you're, you're wise. Like, I mean smart when I say like, you know how to make points. And you've read as much as anyone else on the subjects that you weigh in on, and you ask great questions, dude. That's kind. Well, but you're, you got to you got to lower expectations. No, before no, no. The episode. Can we no, inter- I want right? like, to jump over. Right. Introduce Carlos. Cardiff Garcia, as you could tell from his name, is from the Scottish part of Spain. <laughs> and <laughs> can we get? Wait, can we just do that first? The story of my name? Yeah, sure. I yeah. know it, but. Let's my, do it. My my family's Cuban, actually. Okay, uh, but before I was born. They did one of those like genealogy studies, and they think we have an ancestor from the city of Cardiff in Wales. Wales, from, like, right? Very long time ago, and my grandfather was just like, "That just seems like a cool name. I love can, it. Can we go with it this? It is cool. It's a great origin and, story." And, he, and you know, they went with it. You're, you know? So but, people probably know your name. Your byline was very prominently featured in the Financial Times for how long were you there? Seven years. And you were the editor at Alphaville. I was the U.S. editor of Alphaville and you hosted started? Alpha Chat. I did not start Alphaville. Who no. started Alphaville? Uh, Stacy Ishmael, Paul Murphy, um, okay. and then there were some like co-founders with him, like Stacy. Okay. Ishmael and, and Helen Thomas and a few others. Yeah. Okay. I, I came think, in later. I think that Alphaville was the proto, like the like the the earliest and the best version of what a mainstream media firm covering finance should do with blogging. And obviously a lot has happened since then, but like you guys were doing it better than the Wall Street Journal, better than The Economist, better than the New York Times. Like I, I felt like Alphaville really was a true blog. But the people blogging there were subject matter experts and reporters. And I also thought you guys did a great job building the community, which is how I know you. Yeah. And how I know like Izzy and, you know, all the all the Alphaville people. But you guys were doing trivia nights, et cetera. But 
big time hedge fund managers were coming out, traders, like you guys really, I think, did it did it exceptionally well. Did you remember how you day. and I met? No. I was I just joined Don't Alphaville. say anything incriminating because we're recording <laughs> this. Not, maybe not incriminating about you. Did I sell I just you something? Joined, I just joined Alphaville and uh I was on a panel with Howard Linton. And you were buddies with him uh, already back. This was like 10 years ago. And we're on this panel and I made like some throwaway joke about stock twits. And he called me a dick in front of like 500 people or something like that. And afterwards, like we went to dinner and it was, it was a lot of fun. But that's what I remembered. I mean, I made some, some kind of throwaway joke. It worked. And he's like, thanks a lot. Dick. <laughs> yeah. Howard's the best. Um, that was great. I, I vaguely remember that, but I, I just, I wanted to get that out there. You guys really, like, I think invented a genre of, of mainstream financial media, like yeah. do, doing that. Do you miss it? Yeah, for sure. Okay. You know, I've gone on to do some really fun, wonderful stuff. Yeah, we'll, we'll but get I, into that. But I miss the, I miss the ability to like, just go in super, super deep on something, right. write it up. And then also to have it be part of like this iterative conversation, which is what blogging was at the time, right? Yeah. Like you'd see something, you'd link to it and then you'd comment on it yourself. Somebody would either disagree with you, argue with you, and you could follow this trail. And by the end of it, Everybody who'd followed the trail knew so much about. You know this what happened to that? So I, much fun. I think Twitter took that over. Yeah, it did because they were doing that on the street.com. They had this thing called columnist conversation. It was the same idea. Like all the people who were writing columns for the street, they would basically be tweeting at each other before there was Twitter. Yeah, and uh, that's that's now gone. Um, all right, so Cardiff is. We're going to get into Cardiff's podcast and his podcasting business. And the stuff that you'll work on at NPR later. But I want to jump right into the big economic indicators this coming week because I think this week, I don't know, Michael, I don't know if you agree with me. This is one of those weeks where the economic data was not ignored by the stock market. This is one of those weeks where, like, there were big reactions, I, I feel, in all the investment markets. So what's the first thing you want to do here? Well, not to be that guy, but I'll be that guy. In terms of the stock market reacting to the economic data, we've been saying for a long time, and it's been happening under the surface, that the stock market has been without leadership, that a lot of the stocks were stalling out. And so if this is an excuse to take a break, to pause, to heaven forbid fall 5% from all-time highs, let's just do it. Let's just get it over with. When you say without leadership, what, what do you I mean? I mean like the, the technology companies, for example, like the, the groups that you want to see leading. So Microsoft looks good, Google looks good, but Amazon looks like crap. Netflix doesn't look, doesn't look good. So a lot of the names that were leading just have been, have been rolling over. In the second quarter, um, it was, like there was an obvious narrative driving the stock market, which was value stocks and cyclical stocks. And the best charts were companies that do heavy lifting in the real economy and like the big technology names kind of were, were a little bit sleepy. And that was a narrative that you could understand. You say like the economy is reopening. All of these factories are coming back online. Orders are coming back in for CapEx. And then it made sense why those were the leadership stocks that all started to fall apart when this Delta thing uh, got serious, probably a month ago. Yeah. And now a lot of these stocks are in free fall. So let me, let me just clarify one more thing. So it's not just the stocks that are leading, but even with the S&P within one and a half percent of all-time highs, if you just look at the sectors and then the stocks, like very few stocks look amazing, even with the market hanging at highs. And I mean, value stocks had been underperforming growth for like a while and it looked about, for a little about bit 30 like- About 30 years. Yeah, well, but it looked like they were finally starting to catch up a little bit because of that story. Then you had- Delta coming on. I mean, one 
thing that I actually didn't look at at the time, but as the stock market was recovering earlier this year, was whether or not the breadth of the market was starting to look a lot healthier than like what had happened in 2020 when you had these tech stocks that were driving. It, I think higher, it was. Right? I think it was at its best in February, but it looked damn good through. Let's say. What would you say? Middle yeah, of but June? Like, but like three weeks ago, three, four, five weeks ago, all anybody was talking about was, uh-oh, 35% of stocks are above the 50-day with stocks are at all-time high. Yeah. And that ended up not mattering for a few weeks because then it was like 65, 70% of stocks, you know, it came back. But uh, but stocks look – and listen, we're up 18%. It's right. August. Stocks were up <laughs> how much last year? Like, it's so fine. Spo- we're so spoiled. We, like, if, the market's chilling for a second. It can how about happen, we went up right? 18% last year, too? It's if, so if, outrageous. If stocks fall 15%, people are going to freak the f*** out. And you know what? It's okay. We could take it. Like, yeah. We probably should chill out for a little bit. And, I mean, this this all coincides with what was happening to the 10-year yield over the last few months, too, right? Where, you know, it peaked back in March right after – the big fiscal package had been passed. And when it looked like inflation was going to be something that could potentially be a problem, at least a problem was priced into, you know, where yields would go. Little by little over the last few months, we've seen more evidence that inflation, if not, if higher inflation isn't going to be transitory, at least it's not going to go to like 7 8% or something crazy, right? Like it might level off. Do you think anybody really believed that that was about to happen? I think they think it's, they, mean, think, they think it's already you know, happening. A very, very small group of people. That's true. But but the people that you're talking about, Josh, they don't believe the CPI is accurate. Like, they don't oh, yeah. believe it's accurate at all. So right. it almost doesn't matter what the number is. Right. And also, though, I mean, it's it, it's not that, like, everybody starts believing it, but some percentage probability gets priced into assets, right? And all you need to do is unwind that little bit of percentage probability, and that can lead, you know, the 10-year to go down. It can lead stocks to go higher, you know? And by the way, something, you know, the, the two of you would probably know a lot of, more about this than I would, you know, um, for decades— the 10-year was above, like, the S&P 500 dividend yield, right? Yes. Well, now the S&P 500 dividend yield is down to, like, 1.3, 1.4, something like they're that. Ne- I check it neck out and, They're now. neck and neck. They're, like, neck and neck, right? Which probably is why the market has so much support. The stock market yeah. has so much support here. Yeah. And I, you have to take that into account when you're looking at the market. So, I don't know. It, if the market's chilling out this week because of some data that, like, missed expectations by a little bit, but frankly isn't that bad, it's not – the end of the world. So I right? want to go back to the treasury thing. Sure. Um, we, we were talking about this James McIntosh story, and he does really good work at the Wall Street Journal. This is him. The co- quote, the core of the problem is that as inflation soared, bond yields fell, creating an instant contradiction. Inflation is poison to bond investors, so they would normally be expected to sell. That's a great line. So he's basically saying, what the hell happened to the normal market relationships? Um, this is one more piece from him. The market response from March to the end of this month can be thought of as pricing in a repeat of the secular stagnation brought on by the 2008 financial crisis with the twist of slightly higher inflation than in the past decade. What, I, that, what's I, going that, I don't like that theory. I, I, don't, I don't get that. Yeah, uh, so I'm not sure. I think I think it's interesting and there's a lot of mystery to this. But can we also just point out that like bond yields have been falling for 35 years or something like that, right? Like That's if this trend. Is, That's still trend. If this is – it's it's back on trend. That's right. right. Like, it, you know, and maybe at some point that will reverse depending on what the economy itself the does. The aberration was the rally this no, spring. I don't think right. – rates don't respond to the economy the way that they do in textbooks. Like they just they just don't. So, or what about but, – but like – to the economy or to inflation or some combination. I, I, like, I, think those, I think those pressures matter, even if they're not the sole determinant. Things like long-term demographics, 
you know, you know, growth rates, expected long-term growth rates. I think those things. Also I matter. think that there are so many price insensitive buyers, and we've been talking a lot about this, that the relationship between yields and economic growth. And I mean, James nailed it. Like, I think the way that he said it, like a, an instant contradiction is really apt, yeah. right? Not, not because for two reasons, not only do higher economic growth, literal growth and expectations portend higher yields, but also inflation actual and perceived, which is what we're having, should be really bad for bond prices. And they're just not right now. Let's say right? it was backwards. Let's say, so right now people are guessing at the economy to try to figure out where yields are going. Let's say it was backwards. You would lose money. You would be a serial money loser if you were making bets on the economy and you were using your input was the 10-year treasury rate. Right, right. You, like you, you'd be out of business. No, yeah. So of course it doesn't work the in the reverse. So, so I, I think that's what people are having a lot of trouble with because maybe there was a time where it was a more linear relationship. Um, yeah. So, so like, what are you, what are you hearing about that? And is this just something we're going to have to stop, like get over, like that the ten year isn't really telling us anything about the economy? For now, that's quite possible. But look, we're just we're in the middle of this really wonky period of time, right? Like the pandemic's not over, and it's resurgent now, yeah. right, with Delta. And I think that's going to have some idiosyncratic effect on these markets. So the short answer is, I don't know. But I do know that like the 10 year has been falling forever and ever. And there have been times when like the economy, you know, starts looking like it's going to recover. The 10 year recovers for a bit and then it continues on its same trajectory. What's going to like get it out of that long term trajectory? I don't know. I do think if the economy shows signs that like productivity growth is booming, there's actually a favorable demographic trend for the next 10 to 15 years. Right. Which I think is sort of under remarked um, things like that. So if the economy starts growing at, you know, Two and a half, three, three and a half percent for several years. I think there's a chance that the ten year will also recover. I think but we could have that. We just haven't seen it. I think we could have that. What you're describing, the ten year still be on the floor. And in terms of productivity growth, six million fewer jobs than in 2019 with higher economic output. So far, yeah. we have this chart, so John. John, you have this chart. Do inflation expectations matter? Was this was this yours? Yeah. So George Perks made this for me. So okay. So Cardiff, this chart is showing. So we're talking about like break-evens, right? right? What is the bond market saying? The difference between the yield on nominal treasuries versus real interest rates. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing in the in the red line, okay? Yeah. The black line has lagged five years or it's, pull, it's pulled forward five years to see how accurate the bond market is in terms of pricing this. Yeah. And honestly, it's not that that bad, but it's not. It's not. It's not insane. You can't set your right. watch by it. No, no. no. And, and, and here's another chart I want to – you can't set you. your watch by any indicator on Wall Street, but wow. you definitely can't set your watch <laughs> by so, this. So this is from the journal. Spending at U.S. retailers fell sharply in June. Later in the article, it says they fell 1.1%. I mean, come on. Is that sharp? <laughs> look at this chart. Look at that chart. Does that look like a sharp fall? Right. No. What, 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 what are we what are Seriously. We so, so if the Michael, people have to write articles. So if the stock, so <laughs> I feel like you're being unfair. No, if the stock market- This complicates monetary policy, If the stock the market way, is falling on, on, on lists and uh, other softer data, you know, and- uh, with stock markets, and not really falling that much. It's up seventeen percent the other day. Exactly, it's two and a half percent off the right. highs. What are we talking so, about? So, Honestly, the indicators that came out this week were not that bad. So they what, just what else? Didn't meet what else? Expectations. Came out? So housing starts. Uh, sing for single housing, 
was especially, I think, pretty good. It was like up 12% year over year. That's been improving for the last few months, right? This is why earlier when I said that like a lot of these trends that people see, they assume that like they're just going to continue forever. But all of these trends always contain within them the seeds of their own undoing, right? Housing prices are super high and people forget that that encourages a supply side response, which eventually has the thing leveling off. That's because right? that's where the start, that's where the starts ramp up within right. reason. Like you know? they're never going to totally meet demand right? because they- they won't make money if they do that, but like but they, but they respond, they you do know, respond, uh, retail sales for July. People were disappointed because it was a miss. If you actually look at it, right. It's still above the trend from pre COVID, not the level, the trend, Let's say, right. Is Walmart so, no, 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 just, just, you know, just pull it. Just sorry. Oh, Keep so going. If you have it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so I, I, I look at this and it's like, yeah, well, we also had earlier this year, we had the big fiscal package. So some of that, impulse is going to like wear off, which is exactly what you want to happen anyways, right? You have the fiscal package, which helps until the labor market, you know, recovers to the point where you don't need as much of a fiscal. So on the retail sales, sales miss, Sam, Sam Rowe uh, wrote about this at Axios and he was basically saying like most people aren't even aware that Amazon Prime Day got pulled into the end of the second quarter. Mm -hmm. So it would normally be in July and happen at the end of June. Right. And that's meaningful because not only are Amazon sales enormous, other retailers have their own promotions that day or even that week right. to compete with Amazon. And online sales are 14% of retail sales. Yeah. So having that time shift, like it, it made a really big difference in the numbers. So if you're like reacting to that sharp decline and you don't even understand like why it happened, it's, al it's almost like you're – you're you're kidding yourself. It wasn't even that sharp, to be 1. honest. It was 1. a miss. <laughs> but like, you know, again, uh, we're still buying things, more things than we would have been buying if the trend from before the pandemic had continued, right? You've got a ton of income support, you know, and there was a big burst of it in uh, March and April, you know. So the last few months before July were especially vigorous, and then it tails off a little bit. It's fine. Did it's you fine. see, so a few headlines I want to talk about. Amazon is basically opening up a Walmart. They're opening up fiscal locations. <laughs> yeah, they're opening uh, like smaller retail so, shops so, like their food right. stores. So they're right? going to be 30,000 square feet. I think the typical department Am store Amazon is, Fresh? No, Amazon, dude. Like Amazon Store? Amazon. Amazon store, like, like, uh, it's going to be, I think Mackie tweeted, it's about a fifth of the size of a normal Walmart, but, but they're doing it. So a few things that surprised me, 14%, uh, online being only 14% of retail, it seems to me like they could, there's a long runway. Like that's, that's not that big. So we got some retailers reporting this year that I want to talk about, or, or this quarter, this week, Target is growing comp sales at 9%, digital sales, 55% on top of 270% growth last year. And all of that is people driving to the store, showing their QR code, and getting it dropped off. I do that three times a week. It's fantastic. Uh, Walmart isn't growing as quickly because Walmart is much, 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 much bigger. So throw this chart up, John. Um, actually, we just found out that Amazon over the last 12 months, you can't see it here, but Amazon just passed Walmart in sales, which is pretty yeah. bonkers. But this chart, which is quarterly revenue, just shows the scale of Walmart. Ooh, look at that exponential and Amazon growth right there. And yeah. look how tiny Target What are the is. numbers? So- so the purple line is Walmart. That's, That's $141 billion in revenue so it's about per six, quarter. It's about $600 billion for the year. So Amazon is one thirteen, and you're saying this latest quarter is even above that? I'm saying that for the last 12 months. Oh, on a 12-month So we will, we will find out. I think facts that compiled this data. It's not, it's not and out And Target is only $24 billion, So arguably, Target has the most room. Correct. Just complete top line. 
and then they, it seems like they're smoking it in uh, Omnichannel. And then last thing I want to say about stock this is, is up fifty percent this year. Um, we we talk about like these businesses all the time and these stocks, and it's just it's just crazy to think that Target paid three hundred thirty six million dollars in dividends last quarter, and Walmart paid. $1.5 billion. <laughs> when people are like, I'm worried That's about like, inflation, why wouldn't you just own those stocks and as prices in the economy rise, those companies will raise their prices and pass that on to yeah, you on in the form you. of a dividend? Well, isn't that why people a lot of times say that the stock market is a much better inflation hedge I think it is. than any other asset The data class, says right? it's you know. better than anything other except for REITs, which are even better. Yeah, yeah. So one question about Amazon and the retail locations. Do we know if they're using that same technology that they use for these food stores where you just walk in, grab the stuff, and walk out so they don't have to spend you know, floor time or floor space on you know, checking out? They can hire way fewer people, that kind of thing, make the experience How do they do that? Pleasant. Is that facial recognition? I don't, th- I don't, think, no. I don't think Walmart's there yet, but – uh, no, no, Amazon. No, how Amazon has oh, oh, used Amazon that for the that. new for yeah. the new. Uh, I've never walked locations. into one. How do they actually have, do that? They have like these. They have like these huge cameras all above the thing, so that when you swipe on your way in, they follow you and they see what you pull off the shelf and throw into your bag, and then you just walk right out. And an hour later, you get your receipt. It'll be really email, funny, you know. You know, it'll be really so. funny to just go in there and like just start sh- like acting like you're shoplifting, just throwing things down your shirt. <laughs> I feel like like slide out the slide out of the thing. I mean, you're paying running. for it, so you might as well have fun. It's a weird experience good, the first good, time you do good. it. Would I used happy, to do that. Like, wouldn't yeah. that be like a fun way to do that store? That'd be a good prank. But-, but I think there's a serious point here, which is that you know, for a lot of the retailers, you know, in the last few years, um, even those who sell a lot of stuff online, they've been focusing on their in-store presence, making those experiences kind of pleasurable. You know, making the aesthetics of the place beautiful. This is this is like what Barnes and Noble is trying to do right now, you know, um, they know they can't compete with online sales. So they make the in-store experience great. And it looks like if Amazon actually can make this technology standard across everything it does, you know, then it might even have a competitive advantage in that too. I don't know. I, walk, I walked into uh, Nordstrom this week. My wife basically bought, like she does catch and release at uh, Nordstrom. Like she buys things and returns Dude, them. Dude, my wife does that. What is that? I don't know. I don't understand. I that. don't think I've ever returned anything no, in my you life. Know what it, you know what it is? The kids won't go shopping with her. I think she orders a lot of stuff for them to try on knowing she's going to have to bring it back. And that, so, all right, whatever. I, so I went with her. They have like a third of the store in Roosevelt Field uh, converted to like a, almost like a, an ad hoc fulfillment center. Like they have long tables set up with like A through F, like the, the letters of your last name, I guess, and just bags and bags. And almost everybody in the store is in there pulling a bag off the table that has their name on it. Like if that's what shopping is now, um, I, I guess the way that these stores look is going to have to change. Yeah. I mean, especially if Amazon is going to be a retail presence. And by the way, they can just buy all the JCPenney leases. They could buy all the Sears leases. Like there's no shortage of oh, places stores right, they right. can put just stuff. Up, yeah. I think it's a good call. Stores will look different going forward. So is that going to be a, a, a CRE story too, a commercial real estate story for like, you know. In the, what the way? Death, the death of, I don't know, retail space, the death of malls, the death of but like so here's the thing. streets on New York. It's not really the apart. death. It's, it's not really the death of, I think, the type of retail. So I was I was in Miami in February. There were There were lines to get into the stores. And part of that is COVID and capacity restrictions. But even without that, there were literally like 20 people on the sidewalk with velvet rope and a bouncer in front of, name it, 
Gucci, Louis Vuitton, Off White. Like this is in the design yeah, district. You were busy, man. Jeez, I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not buying anything. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's buying something with my credit card. It's not me. <laughs> I think that type of retail never goes extinct. But if I have to walk down the aisles of a Target versus put the stuff on the Target app and pick it up, that's a no-brainer. Yeah. So I no, think specifically, I meant it was forestalling the death of like these retail spaces, right? Correct. Like these places have been, you know, everybody's breaking their lease. Everybody's going out of business. Well, now if you have this reorientation of retail towards something that's actually fun and enjoyable, like maybe it slows down the decline of, of the traditional. It'll be interesting to see if the online only retailers, like I'm thinking of like Chewy, if they decide, you know what, why wouldn't we just have 50 retail stores? They're almost like advertisements mm-hmm. for the brand. If we put them in the right place in a malls or in downtown areas, like I think as we get out of this COVID phase, you could see more of that. Be yeah. interesting to see. What about um? So uh, I don't know. What I said what about Walmart's global e-commerce business is now massive. It's seventy-five billion dollars, up from zero. I don't know when they started this. Probably not even five years ago. And did you know that they have an advertising platform like like Amazon does? I did, just because I've seen it on their site. I didn't really understand that it was like a revenue driver. So they've got like a marketplace like Amazon, and it's they have an ad business. For, this of, is for third-party sellers. Because right, of course they do. Selling on, well, they're also doing streaming video. So they, they seem to be doing whatever Amazon does. And Walmart's she, doing streaming video, really? Yes. And they're getting yes. into financial services. Yeah, which really? I, they should have arguably done like 25 years ago. Yeah. Like it, I'm surprised they didn't have something more sophisticated gonna, for that. They're going to do daily pay. F- they're going to do daily pay for their employees. They have a built-in audience of people where that is the only place that yeah. they can go. And why wouldn't they sell mortgages to those people? Why wouldn't they issue credit cards to those people? It makes no sense that they've waited as long as they have to actually become the bank to. I don't want to say rural America. How could I say this? Rural America. The exurbs. Yeah, that's fine. Like the exurbs. How's it going? Like, are people using it? Is it working? I don't know. I feel like Wall Street doesn't even care. They just like the announcement. Yeah. So I, I don't actually know if people are using it. I would imagine you can get some percentage of people to use anything. Um, I want to take a I want to take a hard turn into Ch- Chairman Powell. Mm-hmm. Uh, did he talked this week. I forget. Yes, he yesterday. Did. It's yeah. All, it's all blurring together. He talked uh, yesterday, and also the FOMC minutes from the last meeting at the end of July just came out yesterday. Okay. Which people don't know this about you, but you are like a credentialed Fed watcher, like. <laughs> You, no, I feel like you know more about this topic than 99% of people who spout off about the yeah. Fed. And I don't think that you're like a fan or an opponent. I think you're just like somebody that really gets what's going on. Um, what's different about Powell's Fed versus all of the other chairpersons and all of the other Fed eras throughout history that maybe the, our audience is not aware of? Carter Falame. Yes, yeah, go my, for it. Yeah, please, please jump in. Hard if you What's correct a, him if he gets that, anything that wrong. It reminds me of the uh, the old uh, the old cartoon where uh, a man is sitting at dinner across from a woman, and the caption says, "Allow me to interrupt your expertise with my confidence." Right? <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. Mike's uh, in. <laughs> you could actually take a break. Mike, go ahead. <laughs> Tag you in. Uh, look, I mean, Powell has uh, has really quite surprisingly led um, led a very big break from economic orthodoxy, right? And I say surprisingly because in his first couple of years as Fed chair, he was very much a continuity Fed chair after Janet Yellen, right? 2018, people forget this, he was raising rates throughout the year, right? And I Trump think- Trump liked him better because he came from business. He came from he business. He was tall. He was a Republican. Not a little Jewish lady. You know? Yeah. And, like it projected yeah. the image that he wanted. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. You know, that was one of the reasons he chose him 
Um, but for his first couple of years, he was doing things pretty much as you would have expected his predecessor to do them. He was raising rates in anticipation of the economy overheating. And people sort of forget now that roughly in the middle of 2019, the yield curve inverted. People were starting to get worried that there was an upcoming recession, right? Yeah. And Powell started reassessing everything, you know, right around the end of 2018, 2019, because inflation remained low and it looks like those Fed uh, rate hikes were a mistake. Yeah, he was so, making a policy error during the trade war. He was aggressively raising, hiking rates in yeah, 18. Yeah. And then around Christmas, he had to reverse himself because yeah. – we know the only indicator they actually follow, the S&P 500, <laughs> had broken the 200-day moving average. And it's probably totally a coincidence that the next day he came out and gave that speech. But he was like uh, the Grinch, yeah. like saving Christmas after almost destroying it that year. Yeah, You, you would say that that's an acknowledged – policy mistake. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And not only that, he changed his mind, which is which an I incredibly love. rare thing which I for love. like okay. a huge policymaker to do. And what he specifically started doing was saying, look, you economists, because remember, he's not an economist, right? Like he came from finance and he's a lawyer by training. And he said, you economists have had these sort of entrenched relationships between all these variables that you think are true, right? I now have to look at the real world to see where reality is contradicting all of your expect, you know, your expectations of where you know theory says we should be. Were, were the academicians so, pissed when he said that? No, I think a lot of them were realizing that this was necessary, and a lot of them, you know, had been pissed off at him too. Like, there's a pretty good split in terms of what the academics think the Fed should have been doing all this time. And so he said, "Look, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that like lower inflation necessarily means." that we're gonna get inflation you know, off the charts, all right? I'm gonna to wait to actually see it happen rather than doing what Fed chairs before had done, Try which to is to anticipate yeah, yeah. that it was gonna happen. Um, this was a huge change in thinking at the Fed. And he started sort of you know, publicly denigrating even like the sort of dot charts that the Fed uses to sort of guide expectations of where policy's going. And he said, look, I'm not doing this anymore. Uh, I'm gonna actually wait to see the data in the real world, okay, and I'll respond to that and not try to to you know forecast. I heard it with like a, I a heard kind of Kashkari tell uh, Joe and Tracy last week roll the dot plot out. It's it's a joke. Like within the <laughs> yeah. Fed, it's a joke. And Powell led that yeah. sort of okay. charge away from that, you okay. know. And so, anyways, I think it's a it's a big reorientation of what the Fed is doing. And the other thing he's done, which is quite remarkable, is he has explicitly said that we can't just look at these like two blunt variables of inflation and the overall unemployment rate. We actually have to look at different segments of society to see how they are doing, right? So this is not one why, economy. You know, there's not one economy, right? It's a multiverse of different economies yes. that different people experience. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's a really I think that's a really great point. Is there a practical way though for the Fed to do that yeah. in the way they set policy? Or is that really more about the speeches they give? Yeah, there is there is a, a couple of things they can do, but the most convincing is just to talk more about it and say, look, right now, you know, the black unemployment rate, for example, is above eight percent, right? The unemployment rate uh, for white workers is less than five percent. All right. And this relationship of almost two to one has sort of existed for a very long time. And if the overall unemployment rate right now were 8%, we'd all still be freaking out, right? But we need to at least give some due attention to the fact that there is this whole population within the US, right, 
that has a very high unemployment rate before we start talking about tightening so, monetary this is policy more, and slowing growth. So the right? way that you explained it, though, it obviously sounds very rational, but this is very controversial. Yeah. There, there is a, a loud and growing chorus of people, and I'm not saying they're definitely wrong, who, who are saying, why is the f***ing Fed chair talking about race and climate change? And this is like so far afield of – and they're having the same reaction they have when they find out that their first grader is being taught about like uh, same-sex marriage. <laughs> like, they, like they really right. are, are pissed off about it. And forget about like how you feel about that. Um, he really is the first Fed chair to to have to like contend with that stuff. Yeah, I don't, maybe yelling a little bit, but I don't think Ben Bernanke was talking about climate change, was he? No, but I would actually separate those two things because looking at racial inequality can serve as a guide to what to do about interest rates and overall monetary I could say the policy. Same, but I could say right? the same thing about global climate warming. change. Climate change is a little bit trickier because the Fed is not supposed to pick individual economic sectors to favor or to like disproportionately okay. damage, right? So the question there is what can the Fed really do? It can do a lot about racial equality. Why? Because letting an economy run hot for longer, letting a boom continue yeah. long for longer than it would have, you know, allowed the economy to boom in the past can actually shrink the employment gaps between for example, white workers and black workers. This is pretty clear in the data. Are you saying but infl for, for, inflation you know, is Inflation has been shown to reduce economic inequality between racial groups. Uh, I'm no. I'm saying that when you allow the economy to get closer to what it considers to be full employment, so when you right. get closer to the point where inflation might take off, we see the employment gaps between black workers and white workers shrinking because as more people get hired, workers start to get a little bit more negotiating but don't, power. But and don't we also get a see the type of asset? But, but don't we? at the same time, see the kind of asset price inflation that um, makes the the wealth inequality gap balloon back up again? You can. Is it like, is it a treadmill? Uh, you can. And this is, this is sort of what's interesting about monetary policy and, and wealth inequality in particular, right? So the middle class is way more highly leveraged to housing than like rich people. So actually right. housing going up can do something about shrinking overall wealth inequality. But we also know that, for instance... Uh, black workers have a much lower home ownership rate than white workers, so it could actually exacerbate racial inequality. But you know, four hundred one k four hundred one k participation four hundred one k participation. Right. But ask yourself this: Are black workers better served by a labor market that sucks, even if wealth inequality no. you know might uh, might increase along with a robust you know labor market? So if right? okay, so, so if it, so if income inequality is shrinking and the price you pay is that wealth inequality is at least temporarily rising. It's a, it's a trade-off that's better than the alternative. I think so because you also have a political mechanism that can work to do things to shrink wealth inequality as well, wealth right? This can't all fall on the Fed. Wealth inequality is, is rising, has been rising, will always be rising. So I think that we can probably, it's better served to focus on income inequality because taxing the rich is not politically palatable. Like that, that's never worked. It's never going to work. So I think that we, to the extent that we can improve income inequality, that's probably time better spent. Okay, yeah, so 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 you point out that so I I was mistaken. I asked you, like, is there a serious conversation about not uh, reappointing Chair Powell when his term ends, which is when early next year? Yeah, that's right. Okay, like 
I feel like he kind of has things under control to the point where like anyone would look at the data and acknowledge that he's gotten us through a pretty rough situation. He doesn't seem to be a partisan hack or particularly interested in debating ideology uh, from one part or the other. Like there's a lot about him for everyone to be okay with, right? But then you you let me know that there is something beneath the surface about bringing in somebody who's a little bit more, I guess, socially liberal or like what? No, uh, tougher on financial regulation. That's where the debate is happening right now. Okay, so okay, so Powell is definitely not looking to crack down on banks or do any of the the things that let's say uh, let's say the Democrats would like to see them do. Yeah, there's a specific issue, right? that a lot of like, I mean, by the way, this this entire split exists within the left, right? This is that's where the argument is taking place. Powell has consistently voted against raising capital requirements for the banks beyond where they are right now. He's a banker, right? so he's well, a private equity guy. What? He is a private equity guy, right? Right. Can't believe so it. he's, he's a- <laughs> <laughs> can't believe he's okay with leverage. Well, but it's it's not that it's it it's that um, you know. The idea of a counter-cyclical buffer of like raising capital requirements when the economy is doing well is that then when things get worse, when the economy tanks again, banks are better defended because they're funding more of what they do with equity rather than with debt, which means maybe there's less of a chance of a financial crisis. His view, I think, and there's some evidence for this, is that banks are pretty well capitalized as is because things really did change after the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. And last year, when the sort of when everything started to fall apart, the one thing that didn't happen was a financial crisis. The banks actually did show that they were sufficiently capitalized, and they did get a ton of help, obviously, from policymakers. Yeah. But they're supposed to do that anyways, right? No, nobody so, was nobody was worried about the banks last year. No. It was like the last thing we were worried about, right? So the argument here is between Jay Powell and Lyle Brainard, who is very close to Powell, I think, on monetary policy, right? But she has consistently voted in favor of. The banks having to have more. But capital do you think there's enough of a groundswell so, for 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 of support for her? I that can't it's really going to be come down to something Biden is going to second guess or. I can't tell. All we know right now is from the reporting that's that's been that's been out there is that this conversation has at least gotten to the White House. But like, I have zero idea. Sp- like, speaking on behalf of the stock market, as I typically <laughs> do. Uh, yeah. No thanks. Like we'll we'll we'll, we'll stay yeah. with Jay for now. I feel like a little bit of continuity is not the worst thing. And a lot of people on the left, by the way, have have really come to appreciate this sort of revolution he's led in monetary policy. So it's not like he has no, uh, you know, fans on the left. It's just that that's where the split exists. Brainard is the is is a legitimate. You know, alternative, and that conversation is happening. Is it Brainard or Brainerd? Might be Brainerd. Okay, I'm just mispronouncing. Uh, uh, Okay, because the reason why I'm asking is because every time I see her name, I think of Fargo. Oh, (laughs) oh, the town (laughs) is Brainerd in Fargo. Yeah. I don't. Oh. I, I apologize to Lyle Brainerd if I'm mispronouncing her name. I don't know. I, I usually just you know read All about right, it. Let's let's talk about inflation. Uh, we talked about it briefly, but uh, this piece from GMO. Uh, first of all, do you think it's as hard to predict uh, five years out as it is one year out? Is it like, or, or or like which which version of of this statement is true? Well, that's inflation, a good question. Is, inflation is impossible to, to predict. Period. Or inflation is a little bit more reliably predicted further out as opposed to over the next 12 months? I think it's definitely harder to predict the farther out you go. Further out's harder. Yeah, the further out's harder, right? But also, but you know, But if we say there's this trend that's a 35-year trend now, 
like this great moderation, then arguably it would be easier to predict further out. Like it could be erratic in the short term, but eventually we get back on trend, which is down. But like things change, right? Like if you'd asked me two years ago, would inflation this year be running at like four to five percent year over year? I just said, what are you nuts? Like, where the hell is that going to come from? Look what happened. You know what I mean? Okay. Uh, I think you can look at trend inflation and you can look at like some economic pressures and where they're going and say, with the enormous caveat that there's going to be no massive external shock like COVID or something else, that like you can guess at what something's going to be, at what inflation is going to be in a year. Five years, like I wouldn't even bother playing that game with you. You know what I mean? Because who the hell knows? Yeah, I think I hear what both of you are saying. I think it's an interesting uh, argument. One of the things that I keep that I was coming back to when commodity prices were rising, um, that I thought this was going to be temporary, and the thing that I would pay attention to are wages because that's the sticky part. That's the thing that doesn't go away. Um, and even though we are seeing the median wage all across the country rise to $15, I think, uh, I saw something, the fast food average is $17 or something along those lines, which is fantastic. It's, it's bad when it hurts the mom and pop businesses, but if McDonald's and Chipotle have to pay a higher wage, who cares? It's great. They take it to margin anyway. So we have to pay a little bit more. Um, no harm, no foul as, as far as I'm concerned, but looking at the Atlanta fed wage data, which GMO shared in their piece, does this look like John seeing, Chardon. does this look like we're seeing wage pressure? Uh, not yet. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's been sort of this consistent. What are these, num- what are these numbers on the y-axis? Two thousand. So uh, actually, here, guys, look at this. This is this is just a month old, so it did, it did shoot up a little bit. Okay. But this is so the Atlanta Fed wage data. By the way, that this is composition adjusted. In other words, this follows the same people as opposed to some of the other data series, which like have meaning dro- what they have like dropouts and then that affects the wage data. So that if like low wage workers you know why that's lose so their important. job. So, so this is more right? inconsistent, no? This well, this is like a very good like so you know why that's so important. This follows the same people. Because if you have if you have a boomer retire at the top of the income scale for a given job, right. And then you have a twenty one year old re- right out of college replace them at a lower wage, they consider that deflation of wages. When in reality, it's just different people at a different point in their life doing the same job. See, Cardiff, exactly right. Cardiff, that's why this is. I'm glad you're here because the composition of 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 wages to Josh's point earlier it it changes when people are coming in, going out. But this says, and I didn't know this until you just said it. The Atlanta Fed's wage tracker is a measure of the nominal wage growth of individuals constructed using microdata from current population surveys. So this is a pure message of overall wages. And there's nothing to worry about. Yeah, wages are going up, but I mean, do they yeah. tell you? When they're you're all, part by the way, their, they're all very. Do they tell you when they're tracking informed. you? What's that? Do they tell, <laughs> I don't know. Is this self-submitted data? I'm not sure. If it's from the CPS, then I'm guessing that, like, yeah, that you. Well, they track you know, from from, it's from like a Nielsen family who has has the television rating box in their house. <laughs> they track <laughs> the, you from the vaccine. Right. <laughs> oh, right. Hello. Right. I forgot yeah, this all about got way that. easier in the last year and a half. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, the information from both wage series is interesting because it's also helpful to know compositionally what's happening in the economy. But if you want to know like what wage growth is doing, you know, specifically like for lower and middle income workers, the Atlanta. Uh, That's the one that you pay the most attention to. I pay attention to all of them, right? They're all useful, but like, this is a, this is a good one. And I mean, you know, look, I think wage growth is probably, you know, going to be 
pretty healthy for the next, at least for the next few months. Aren't we just making up for like a lost 15 or 20 year period of very little wage growth for the average worker? Right. We've seen all those data points from 1976 to today, the nominal wage growth, or or, or, I'm sorry, not nominal, real wage growth is is 0.2% a year. Finally, people are getting raises and, and there's this cohort of the population that's like freaking out over it. Yeah, we better put a stop to that shit. But like this is, but this is, this doesn't make any sense to me because you know you pay more, and you know the people who are getting the wage bumps are also the people who are more likely to spend the money. You know, so I, you know, so which means that like there might be again, there might be like a shift in like which economic sectors benefit. But it doesn't mean the overall economy is going to yes. be more spending. It'll be. Better, I don't understand so, where inflated pricing rises, but the the pie is going to ostensibly grow if people that spend money have more of it. Yeah. Um, I wanted to get your take on this. What do we make of producer prices rising faster than consumer prices? This So Liz Ann Saunders tweeted this chart. It looks pretty rare. We saw this in the 70s. Obviously not a great we time. Uh, so what do we what – this, John, this is the uh, the blue line, the, the line with the blue chart. What do, we, what do we make of this? What's going on here? This is a great question. Um, you know, I'm not so sure if you look at a chart like this – that producer prices have like a very useful, very like, noisy. That, like it translates into actual consumer prices later on, right? It's important for like, you know, for producers, for companies. Um, but right now, again, we're just like in this really weird moment, you know, and we've got chip shortages. There's weird stuff happening with containers, right? I mean, there's all these kinds of blockages which are going to affect these companies, but ultimately whether it translates into consumer prices depends on the health of competition between there was like, an the analyst, who actually sell things to consumers. There's right? an analyst asking an auto executive on a conference call about like a Malaysian chip plant that closed down. It's like, is that really going to be the f-ing difference maker between whether or not somebody wants to invest in GM or not? Yeah. That a Malaysian chip plant is closed down. Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> but that is, to your point, like there are a lot of things companies are telling us that they've never had to tell us in a long time. Yeah. And maybe it continues throughout the end of the year, which renders most of this data way too noisy to be useful. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And again, like these things, there's always under the surface, there's things happening to undo the trend as soon as it starts, right? So a lot of these shortages, like – there's a lot of money going into fixing them, right? There's a lot of very smart people who are trying to fix them. So yeah, there's shortages. But every time somebody says, well, the chip shortage won't be alleviated for like three to five years, I always just assume that they're making assumptions based on the like speed of production that we've had historically. Right. But why on earth would that happen when the prices of these things have shot up so much? Like that always engenders right. a right. response. Right, they're going to sit there in know? Taiwan and just watch the shortage persist? <laughs> yeah, right. Like is is has that been has that been the lived experience of the technology industry? No sluggishness. Right, they're going to ramp up. I yeah. don't think so. So let's talk about this Matt Klein chart, and I, uh, I subscribe to his Substack, um, and he shout is to Matthew, shout yeah, to Matthew Matt Klein. Klein he's outstanding. In, he's the overshoot. In, he's in San Francisco San now. San Francisco. Yeah. Oh, I want to okay. I want to get your take on this. I, so sure. I, I said to Ben the other day that all of these all stars leaving journalism and starting Substacks like Matt Klein. Isn't that going to be a great opportunity for younger people in journalism to come up, to rise up? What do you think about oh, that? That's a great, that's a great point. And what I can say is I hope so, but part of it depends on whether the loss of some of these superstar types also is bad for the, for the actual Dude, journalistic organizations, by the way, like they're starting at Barron's, Substack. you know, you know ten, 10 years ago, Barron's who lost would- people to Substack. Like, Maybe that means fewer people who subscribe to Barron's for Matt Klein, right? Like there's a there's a sort of so it's hard to tell. Yeah, like yeah. like our friend Packy McCormick, uh, friend of the show, uh, castmate on the show. Where would he be writing ten years ago? Maybe for TechCrunch or something. Like he started at Substack. That's a loss 
to the journalism industry that covers technology. Possibly like, the story will be one of specialization instead, where the journalistic organizations will hire like outstanding news reporters, like people who do the reporting and don't mind writing in like the traditional news style generalists, right. right? And they'll be, but they'll be great at that and they'll select for that, right? And then the people who have more of a kind of an analytical bent or a very like personality driven bent, right? They'll they'll still write for Substack and on their own, right? Like I can't imagine, frankly, either of you two being like the treasury reporter at the Wall Street Journal or something. Well, like you don't that, think right? I'd be good at that? I think you'd hate it. <laughs> yeah. Right. I think you'd hate I, it. And I, I think, think and I think they that. have somebody there now who like probably loves it, you know? And yeah. so So yeah. let's so let's talk about this chart. What is what is uh, Matt Klein showing here? So what he's essentially showing is that if you take out the economic sectors that have been sort of particularly targeted by the pandemic. So, you know, as it's listed there, restaurants, hotels, airlines, et cetera, plus, you know, these kind of wonky things happening in the auto sector, that the inflation in the rest of the economy is pretty bang on what inflation had been doing. Looks like two and a quarter percent. You know, is yeah. that what I'm looking yeah, at? Yeah, the, the, like the green bar. Two two 99 times out of 100 like when you start Xing stuff out of the data, it's bullshit. But in this case, you have you to. Have to. Yeah. You have There's to. have There's no choice. Because of the nature of the, it's not a recession. It's, <laughs> it's 1987, but in the actual the, economy, the economy, not in the stock market. <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. So you have to pull out we, used we, cars. We took, we took the heart of the economy out of the body and put it on ice for six months yes, and then put it back in and said, okay, now beat again. And shit got f***ed up. Exactly. You know, okay. so like, you know. So you pull those things way, out and you get back on trend uh, inflation where we already were and arguably are returning back to. That's the second point, which is that even those sectors where inflation has been running hot, in other words, the sectors that were targeted by the pandemic that he had stripped out and it's running hot, it's starting to mitigate. Those now, are normalizing. Right? They're normalizing. Well, why right? wouldn't they? We're not having a new pandemic. We're coming out of the old one. I, I assume. Yeah. <laughs> Transitory. I, I assume. That's or, me either that or either table. that or this podcast is a super spreader event. I got Wait, five, I got five people but in before here. Before right just now. just real yeah. quick on this last topic. So sure. I was listening to uh Josh just mentioned Neil Kashkari was on with Joe and Tracy. And the way that he was describing how people interpret the Fed and the dot plot. And if you he's like, it's nonsense, but if we take it take it away, the interpretation of us taking it away will cause like a shitstorm. And, and gold will go to three thousand. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think I think like there is real problems with this transitory thing, the temporary, the transitory, the 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 temporary. Like it is it is confusing for people, it, it, and and that's understandable, right? It's probably confusing for you know for the specialists for the Fed. I'm a little confused half the time, right? Even beyond what's normal. So I just like I sort of think that. Uh, you know, explaining this as clearly as possible is really important, which is why I like that chart. I think it's a very compelling you know, thing to show so, people. But like with the Fed trying to communicate this stuff to people, yeah, because people prefer the very simple, you know, explanation. Right now there kind of isn't one. So we, we have to wait it out. But also people, I think, sometimes worry about like an overreaction. If the Fed says, don't worry about the the dot plot, or if the Fed says, like, listen, like, yeah, we might start tapering off purchases of treasuries and MBS, and everybody's going to freak out. Right. So then they try to say, well, that's not related to when we're going to eventually hike rates. So there's this constant, like, people freaking out, and then the Fed saying, don't worry about it. Sometimes it works, sometimes not. Like, try to look through that The other stuff. thing is that most of the people covering the Fed, covering, like, like in their basement, Assume the worst, no matter what they say or do. Yeah. Assume that there's either ulterior motive or they don't know what they're talking about. Right. Or sometimes both. Um, the Ethereum community seems different to me than <laughs> – this is a hard pivot, but uh, 
Imagine if the Fed operated this way. So in the last week or two, they've been making like very concrete steps toward a couple of things that they've really wanted to do. One is uh, limiting the issuance of new uh, Ether tokens so that at some point there is something more close to a cap and that the value of ETH can grow. And they decided on a fork and they did it and now they're going to merge the two. But they're doing this very cooperatively. It's it's weird to see this community that's spread out all over the globe operating in lockstep for what's best for the community. Like you almost don't see that anywhere else these days. Everything's so f***ing dysfunctional. Um, so they've decided this is in the best interest and very democratically because this is based on who owns it, basically, the miners, the the validators. They're able to do that. What if the Fed operated that way? Uh, where, where, like, I, I don't know how that would work. And I'm not saying replace the central bank with the blockchain, <laughs> but it's just interesting to see a functioning democratic version of monetary policy, even on a much smaller scale in a particular cryptocurrency. Um, but they're like, they're doing that. Yeah. So like, I, I, I was curious what your take is on that kind of thing. I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, we were just talking a second ago about the confusion that arises from the Fed sending off mixed signals. Now, imagine if it's like a flat structure and the messages are coming from, you know, a billion different places, right? right. You know, I mean, the, the communication part of this is so important. So I, I'm a little bit out of my depth in terms of like the technology here. I mean, like I can follow the the sort of the sort of things that get reported. I guess what like I, I yeah. can, okay, this is this That's is what the this message, means. The I get messaging it, like, and the community, you know. the community pulling together and saying like this is the right thing to do for all of us. Yeah, and then actually executing. Here's a question though: like if if the community has just decided that it wants to start limiting how much ether goes out there, it sounds like what they're doing is they're starting to treat it more like. Bitcoin and more like an asset class rather than a proper currency. No, they're right? getting, like, but they're at the same time they're getting away from proof of work, which is economically ruin, uh, 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 environmentally ruinous yeah. uh, way that Bitcoin operates. Moving to proof of stake, which mm -hmm. arguably favors the people that own the most. Yeah. So maybe it's less democratic from that standpoint. But again, they've decided as a community to do this, right? And they are going to do it. And I just. Like we, I, I don't feel like we have that level of cohesion in anything. We can't even get people to get vaccinated. Like we can't even agree that vaccines are better than getting sick and dying. Right. So it's, I, I don't know. I thought that. No, I thought it's that, impressive. There's like this in Wikipedia, you know, <laughs> like that basically. And yeah. everyone on Wikipedia works very well together too. That's, <laughs> Carter, yeah, that's, that's a very good right. point. Carter, if you found this uh, from, from a, a, a BIS survey, and I thought this was really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Among the various cryptocurrencies, owners of Ether and XRP have the highest income and education levels. What's XRP? Is that Ripple? I don't know. Josh? Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, while, those, while, those owning Litecoin, <laughs> while those owning Litecoin are the least educated. I would have thought it would have been Doge. I own Litecoin. It's pretty <laughs> stupid. The guy who founded it is on Twitter. And like the minute it went up a little bit in 2017, he sold all of his Litecoin. What's Litecoin? This guy, Charlie Lee, like invented it. It's It trades. It's on... Uh, yeah. You, can, you can buy and sell it on uh, Coinbase along with many other things that have no meaning. I asked uh, – hey, we I, interviewed him for the, for the NFT episode. You talked, oh, did you? you talked to him? Yeah. Carter he's, he's thoughtful. The Litecoin founder, right? He's thoughtful, but like he dumped his whole stake. Oh, really? Like four <laughs> years ago or something? <laughs> a few <laughs> months ago, uh, a friend of mine was telling me about Filecoin. I said, Filecoin? What's that? He goes, it's a crypto. Well, it's DeFi. He goes, it's a crypto. I was like, no, no. I, no I mean, I, I got that. What does it do? He's like, it goes up. 
Yeah, yeah. This is the this is the thing. <laughs> well, I'm, actually, I'm still waiting for the for the real world application of these. Well, things, wait a minute. Right? So that has real that, world application. Which one? Filecoin actually you can use to buy server space, like to store. Like it actually, it's like a Chuck E. Cheese token. It has meaning inside of the Chuck E. Cheese. You can use it to <laughs> I was play. Say, can ball. I use dollars to buy server space too? You absolutely can. <laughs> you absolutely can. But it actually has an ecosystem. Okay. That it addresses. But what if the real world- A lot of these things obviously don't. What okay. if the real world uses that we're looking for are never going to materialize in terms of us buying groceries with Bitcoin, but we're building toward a place where um, the- what, what if a DAO buy- I forget who was speculating, speculating about this. What if a DAO buys a sports team? A, a, or what if- A DAO uh, is a decentralized autonomous organization. So a group of people- on the blockchain, who get together to do something? So now I don't know that a sport that a, that a, that the NBA, for example, they almost certainly wouldn't. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, they, allow, they wouldn't it. allow it. But um, there will be giant pools of money, and uh, in terms of all of the NFT stuff, which a lot of people think is a joke, like I think that there is there, they are building real world applications. It's just not mainstream yet, and it might not be for a long time. Is it possible? And this is just an uncomfortable point that some organizations actually benefit from some kind of a top-down hierarchy and that we're trying to like put this like idealized democratic, small d democratic version of things into like a managerial structure where it's just not going to work. Cardiff, right? like, I, could not agree not with, like, I could not agree with you more. I don't want the crowd running the New York Times. Like I, I want there to be editors and publishers and ombudsmen and the people that like set the tone for what would and would not be acceptable on the part of their journalists, what are their standards? I could not. I I think religions probably shouldn't be democrat. Like we know what happened. We we know episodes in history where all of a sudden we turned over the asylum to the inmates. Like what ends up happening? It never ends up democratic. It always ends up with somebody accumulating power. I don't yeah. know how they would do it in a blockchain format, but not everything should be a free for all. And mob rule. I don't. So I, I I agree with that. I just don't know definitively what should and what shouldn't offhand. I just know it when I see it. I, I want to be open minded about this until like your point, Mike. That you know it could well be that the real world application just hasn't emerged yet. But there's all these people working on the technology, and so eventually this will lead to something great. I'm not like dismissing that at all. Um, but I think in the meantime, for people who are thinking about investing in crypto and they're looking at like, well, what's the prestigious crypto, you know, to invest in and like, who's the, you know what I mean? Like, like if that's, if that's ether now, like, great. But like, Does if they're thinking about doing that, I think that's a good sign. <laughs> well, I, I think <laughs> point no, to, you're right. you know, point to the other, like, if we point to the other, um, finding in this survey right now, it looks like the majority of people who invest in crypto are not people who are worried about the future of fiat. And they're not people who are worried about like compromised security. Systems. They're gambling. They're, they're gambling. Kids. They're speculating. That's fine. Right? They're, they're Twitter invested. kids. Yeah. Not, that's fine. They, follow, they followed an influencer and just know it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And no, then how, they made money on their first three trades, and now they're. But in this is that. why. This is why for me, for years, for me, crypto was so confusing because on the one hand, you had the the degens and the loud, obnoxious voices pumping it r relentlessly, and you also had Andreessen Horowitz. And, and all those people, the smartest people in the world, pounding the table that this is the next internet. And that scrambled my brain. I wasn't able to process oh, that. Oh, it, like it breaks your brain to think, how are these idiots going to be right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> like I, they're clearly either criminals or out of their minds. 
how are they also going to be right when Andrews and Horowitz right. is right? So a lot of what we see is the speculation, the people going crazy. That what, what did Robin have reported? Dogecoin was responsible for a third of their revenue. I did something crazy. And crypto is forty something percent, of and, their and revenue Doge was a quarter, quarter of that. Or is it really? Robinhood said twenty six percent of their revenue in the second quarter came from Dogecoin. <laughs> I swear to God. So you half see, their revenue is crypto, to, uh, and half of that is right. is right. The so dog. That, so that's the stuff, guys. That that's the stuff that's in your face. Where yeah. you're like, stop the ride. I want to get off. Yeah. What we're not privy to is all of like the geniuses that are actually building quietly every day. Speak for yourself. And and, and I I do think that that's happening. Yeah. I know it's happening. We just don't see it. Um, yeah. Listen to this disclosure that Robinhood put in a 10Q in concert with reporting earnings. <laughs> Quote, if demand for transactions in Dogecoin declines and is not replaced by new demand for other cryptocurrencies, our business, financial condition, and results of operations could be adversely affected. Which is like if we run out of glue for people to sniff. <laughs> but that's the thing, dude. There's, you'll never run out of glue. So in terms yeah. of Robinhood, like I would not short stupidity. Like that- Avi Salzman at Barron's Today headline, Robinhood is running out of investment manias to ride. You would take the other side of that? Never. Never. There's always something. So what's next? I have no idea. So I'll are fucking they, buy it right are now. They, are they worried? I'll buy are you that guys shit worried? right now. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you if I know. Are you guys worried about the uh, regulators coming for pay for order flow? Like what's the, you know. No, because, 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 because it would fine. Be very unpopular. Fine. Turn that off users. and go to the stock exchanges and pay $5.99 a trade. Who right. wants that? Nobody wants it. I don't care if they're front running me by a one one hundredth of a penny and I'm not getting best execution. Who gives a crap? Yeah. I no, yeah, I, I I see the headlines that this is uh, you know again, this is politics. You know stuff, what's so more likely? Know, this might be a blockchain thing or a, or a DA uh, a DAO thing. What's more likely is a crowdsourced effort to build their own market maker to Robinhood, so that they can be on the other side of the trades instead of a hedge fund. Like you want to democratize investing, democratize payment for order flow. Let's get some retail people on the right side of I'm those sure, trades. I'm Dude, sure that's coming. Get a lawyer on the come. phone and uh, and let's get that IP'd. And uh, you know, you like what I what, just what, what, I did there? what I'm interested about in terms of regulation. There's a lot of it. Uh, there was a lawyer on the Bankless podcast this weekend talking about about uh, regulation in the infrastructure bill. I'm curious about um, FTX and the tokens that trade 24 seven that replicate like. Tesla, for example, or any single. They have stock no explosion. voting rights. They are representative of the price a, of the it's stock. It's a derivative, I guess. Yeah. So that's not that's not legal here, obviously. I hate the idea. So of course it's gonna it's gonna be huge. Uh. <laughs> in fact, by the way, to, to, there is a segue between those two things we just discussed, which is the Fed actually started discussing crypto. I think explicitly in the last meeting. I think it's the first time it made the FOMC. It's only two uh, trillion dollars. Minutes, I think. Good, 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 good luck ignoring it. It's only two trillion dollars <laughs> and growing by double. Like a they're year. worried about stable coins in right. particular right now yeah. because they're not backed by what they say they're going to be backed by. And if they're in the commercial paper market and they have to pull out because there's a run on one of the stable coins, then it might cascade into other problems. Talk about real world application. Cade Cunningham, the the number one pick for the Pistons. Said that he's going to be getting some of his payment. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't read the details, but from BlockFi uh, in crypto. So I think what's going to happen one day, I don't know if FTX or somebody else is going to do this. Like somebody's going to say, like, they're going to tokenize their contract. Spencer Dinwiddie tried to do this. They're going to get paid up front. The contracts are going to be tradable. I think all of that is inevitable. Yeah, could happen. I mean, again, regulations are, are the thing that stops these types of things from happening. I don't even think you need like, regulation. You might, the you NBA know. could decide. We don't like the idea of fans speculating in the contracts of our contractually obligated employees. 
don't know if they see the players as their employees or. Well, the what if teams. a players union says, "Okay, fine, but we want it," and they're gonna they're gonna fight back? Well, the, well, te- the team owners versus the players, they might they just might not just like they don't like ga- they don't like the the players gambling on yeah. games. They might not like the idea of people gambling on player contracts. Yeah, I don't know why, but. When I say regulations, by the way, I mean, like, I don't just mean, like, somebody in Washington passing a law. I mean, like, the NBA might decide, like, look, we have this already kind of delicately balanced system between the owners, the players' union, right? They found a way to split NFT revenues, okay? And, like, they'll take that kind of an approach. <laughs> right, but you're not They're tokenizing not gonna, your contract. You know, but you're not freaking tokenizing <laughs> your contract is All what right. they might so, say. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the new bazaar. I listened okay. to your first episode. So let me set this up. You were doing the Indicator podcast. Was it a radio show too? Uh, it was sometimes cut down into a shorter radio show that okay. went on NPR. Right. right. So you were yeah. you were doing NPR, which is speaking of prestigious, <laughs> right? Um, and I loved your show, and I was a guest on it. And shout out to Stacy, yeah. both of you guys. Yeah. So they fired you. <laughs> um, and no, so you, incorrect. <laughs> so during the pandemic, you 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 were very you've been very passionate about podcasting, and I think you're very good at it. And you said, myself and a business partner, we're going to set up our own, not only our own podcast, but we're actually going to set up a podcasting business. Tell us what you're doing there. Yeah. So um, Amy Keen is my business partner, and she and I uh, collaborated on FT Alpha Chat, which was the podcast that I hosted at the Financial Times before I went to NPR. So. She and I had been talking for a long time about possibly getting together and and working together and starting up like our own company. Something that actually is part of like the broader economic story of last year is that because everything was shut down last year and our savings rates went through the roof because we were lucky enough to keep our jobs, it actually accelerated like the date at which we could finally like launch this business, you know? So um, we did earlier this year and we're just four months into it now, but- we decided that because the podcasting like business models are so in flux right now and because the business itself is sort of unclear, we're setting up like three buckets, right, of things we're doing. Two of those are things we really wanted to be doing and another one is a sort of a way to generate side income. So the first thing we're doing is the new bazaar, which is the podcast that you just listened to. First and episode was great. We're going we're gonna to link to that for everybody that, that awesome. likes podcasts. You got to add this one to your subscription list. It's 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 really good. Peter, thank you. Bla- yeah. Is it Blair Henry? Uh, Peter Blair Henry. That guy yeah. was is he's excellent. Super smart. Holy he's moly! Excellent. And what is and what yeah. a what a personal story. That was amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, so we booked him for next week. So. <laughs> excellent. Well done. So, so you guys we don't uh, have to actually listen to the new bazaar. <laughs> just, just wait a week. Tuned. Just wait a week. Um, bucket two so is what. Bucket two is the podcast that Amy right now is herself reporting and will host later in the year. But it's different from the first podcast, which is mine, which is going to be every single week and ongoing. She's doing one standalone season of a podcast. It's going to be five to eight episodes, and it's going to be a narrative podcast. Murder. Which means that it tells a will story. Will there be murder? No. It's going to be <laughs> It's going to be just as interesting as murder, I think. It's, a, um, it's going to be an economic history of baseball's Negro Leagues, which her grandfather played in back in the 1950s. Oh, shit. Been wanting to like work on this project for a she while. Has it all right? in her head already? Wait, did you say, did, did say the economic angle? Yeah, it's wow. going to be like business and economic stories from baseball's Negro leagues. So like the sort of the rise. I feel like there the are like so many of those though. And you know, <laughs> 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 that's, 
That's that's a, I mean that's such a killer very crowded very yeah. crowded space it's for people that like spot, sports you know? and economics, which I think is a lot of our listeners. Right, that'll definitely make the list. Yeah. So. And our our hope is that for that one, instead of like selling ads against it like we're doing for mine, we can just partner with somebody and they'll sponsor essentially the whole thing. They'll buy it or they'll sponsor the whole thing. Uh, that kind of Nike, thing, you know? if you're listening, <laughs> right? Obvious, like, exactly. It's a yeah. No brainer. What's Dan Levitard's new uh, company doing these days? <laughs> right. um, so, anyways, that's bucket two. Bucket three is where she and I basically just offer ourselves out as consultants and as freelance. Duncan, you're fired. Like that. So, you know. <laughs> Cardiff is the new producer. Uh, John, you could stay. Cardiff is Cardiff and Amy are the new producers of the Compounded Friends. I think I think they've hired us, actually. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, Duncan quits. Oh, yeah. Oh. Duncan. No, you hire us. Right. Which way is the money going? Jolts. Yeah. Quit rate. <laughs> exactly. You saw that article about people working multiple uh Multiple jobs, right? That, yeah. What do you think of that? So let me tell you about oh about the multiple no, job so thing. Stick, oh, that's great. Let's yeah. stick with what you're doing. Okay. <laughs> no, what I was going to say though, you guys last week talked a lot about like the fissuring of the workplace, people going independent, startups booming, right? Well, so like obviously, Amy and I left big organizations to do this on our own. Uh, our lawyer that we hired to do like our contracts and our IP, like he just went on his own a year and a half ago. The sound engineer we're using is a freelancer, right? Um, the composer that we hired to do our music, all right, he has his own company. We're literally not this. using any companies that have like an organizational structure. Are you guys just right? all Venmo you know? each other? Is that like, <laughs> is that like how money's changing hands? I love this because yep. I've always been an indie you know, person myself. Like I've, I've always just been like, I'm doing this myself. So I love that that's happening. Yeah. Uh, how much room is there? for new podcasts. Is there plenty because old podcasts just die out? Because I know there's a lot, but they, there's a lot that go away and are no longer right. on the field of play. There's a lot of turnover. So, so that's why there's still room for new ideas. And also from the business side, right? Here's a number that might surprise you. This is the first year, 2021, when it's expected that podcast revenues in the US, in total for every podcast, right? Yeah. Will cross a billion dollars, it's, right? It's remarkable. In revenues. It's tiny. Right? It's small. And Joe Rogan's probably Wait, five to ten percent of that. A whole billion thing. for yeah. the whole pie? For the entirety of the US podcasting market, revenues are expected to pass just one billion dollars for the first time. What are we all doing? This year, right? <laughs> but, but 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 Cardiff, you're right. It's between the Ringer, Rogan, Marin, and the Daily, that's gotta be fifty percent of the pie. That's a huge Wait, share Duncan, of the are, you, pie. are you surprised I mean, by that number? Yeah, yeah, no, I would have thought for the whole industry. So I, yeah. I spoke about this with Ben recently that I, 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 I was flabbergasted because I think Yahoo Mail did like $4 billion in revenue last year or whatever Yahoo segments that they were selling. I, I couldn't believe how small podcasting is. Yeah, and still growing, I should say, which is like to me, I think there's still a business opportunity there, partly because of all the turnover that you just mentioned, Josh, and also because it's still an immature industry. There's a ton of experimentation happening right now with podcasting business models, okay? You guys have done host red ads. It's a relatively new innovation of the last couple of years, but is right? It, it, feels very, it feels very 1940s, quite frankly. Well, yeah, but a lot of, a lot of like BDs going back to the 1940s where there's like, right. you know, the, the sort of boundaries between like what's news, what's just who you are, it's personality driven. A lot of that stuff is very different from what we had for like decades of just like Dan Rather, CBS Evening News. You know what I mean? It's, it's just a very different ecosystem um, so Dan, Dan Rather in Vietnam, you know, like now, like if he were, he would be like selling muscle powder from the <laughs> helicopter, right. like leaving Saigon. Yeah. 
jumping and, out of and he would out own his right. own production and everyone that worked for him would be freelancing exactly right? it'd be a very different world it's just a different world so okay. there's still a lot of experimentation happening on the business side which is also partly why Amy and I who are already taking like a massive amount of like personal risk with our own finances, right? We knew that we had to like try a few different things. I was gonna say, once, how are you, you sleeping know? since like starting your own business? Cause this is your first venture. Yeah. I mean, I was terrified when, when we started on, Michael could tell you. Yeah. Like I was anxious all day. Like, are you, are you like that or are things clicking? I, it's not that I've gotten anxious because I'm really excited you don't seem that we're anxious. doing this. We've been, we've been dreaming about this for so long. Right. We are working a lot. Like we're working long hours. In fact, in terms of running a business, I think the one lesson I've learned that's really stuck is that the advice that people sometimes give you on like LinkedIn or these damn like bogus sites where they're like, hey, just write the six things you have to do today and cross off the bottom five. <laughs> that's such horseshit. When you're running a business, you got to do all six things. You seven. know, like and sometimes, seven, like and sometimes three <laughs> others that you're three not more even aware that of. Pop up, right? Right. What I've learned instead is that. You still have to do all the tasks, but you have to get better. I had to get better at switching my mindset between the different tasks because there is a very big part of our job that requires creativity and that you can't be hyper-efficient about. Like you have to like think through the idea deeply. You have to do a lot of reading. You have to come, you have to bounce it off people, come back in and out. So like you have to make room for that. Then there's things like sending off invoices and shit like that where you can just kind of, you know, you can just be as hyper efficient as you can. Automate a lot of that stuff. And then there's the stuff in the middle, which is like business decisions, you know, like- Dude, booking guests. partner with fun things. Booking guests You are like hard. such a like, prima yeah. donna to get you in here. Like you must go through <laughs> that all the time. No, I, I'm lucky. I'm booking my friends. Like- Yeah. I'm not, I'm not like coming to people out of the blue and like, hey, I read this paper you wrote. You want to come talk to me for two hours about it? Yeah. But like, you're going to have to do a lot of that. Yeah. I feel like. Okay. And that's really important. And so- there's no sense in which it's like, well, I can just ignore those other things because I'm focusing on the one big thing. When you work for a big company, a lot of that other stuff's taken care of, right? That's right. Like I'd never hired a lawyer before, right? Like this is not, that's the you know, that's the trade -off. things like that that you have to spend a lot of time doing. That's right. Um, and so you have to get good at changing like your mindset very quickly between the tasks, but you got to do them all, you know, and that just takes time. And I, I wish there was some easy way of saying like, I'm just going to work, you know, eight hours a day. That's uh, no, no. Short, like, no short. Start a business, because the upside, hard. because the upside, if this works, the upside is so big that, that the 10 hours you're working instead of eight hours, it won't even occur to you yeah. like in real time while you're doing it. Because also this is a passion thing for you. It is. This isn't like, oh, I guess I'll just do a podcast. Like this is what you want. Right. So you're not, the it's hours, what I love doing. the hours yeah. aren't going to be the issue for you. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. the, the issue is, the issue is going to, no, I don't even know what the issue would be for you, but <laughs> Um, it's, it's going to work. Yeah. I listen, I've been listening to you for a long time. I listened to your new thing. You're, you're, you're going to blow up. I got a question for you guys, actually, if you want to, if you want to, you know, rever reverse. Why the, are we so good at this? No, it's, it's more, um, you know, when you have this podcast and I know you have like a few others, right? What kind of like process did you use to put in place like the scaffolding of like, okay, mm. we get the guest in, we have a bantery segment first. We have this sort of built-in suspense on this show right now of like, there's all these topics. People are wondering what the topic's going to be. They're wondering how good the guest is going to be, right? Presumably you don't announce that before the thing comes out. You know, you have like the favorites at the end. That's like, I'm fascinated by how people put built-in suspense you have a take on this? into their Mike's been like, podcasting longer than, longer than I have. What's the question? <laughs> it's like, how, what kind of thought process? Like, how did you the arrive like at the, the structure, structure of, of the show? Of the show. Uh, so, 
our show, as far as I can recall, like for Animal Spirits, for example, I think it's pretty much unchanged. We have our Google Doc, we have our topics, and we've added and iterated and removed things and changed things. But for whatever reason, like we we hit on a formula that worked pretty early. Um, and then I think for the for what are your thoughts? We did make one important tweak to that. So we have three topics each, and what we were doing for the first. Call this it is the the YouTube show for the first year and a half. And this is so dumb. What we were when doing. you hear it, you're gonna you're gonna <laughs> for the first year and a half we didn't know each other's topics, and so Josh would I, we was I was like suspenseful for the audience. Michael doesn't know what I'm gonna ask. Him. So the it same was, topic. It was like <laughs> surprise. Talk about the stock market in India. Yeah. So, so so oftentimes Josh would ask me a question. I was like I don't I don't I got nothing. I I don't know anything about this. Right. And I was like all right cool next topic. So I said hey wait this is so dumb. Why don't you just tell me your topics? I'll tell you mine. This way we can research and prepare yeah. and have thoughtful answers. And so just things Dude, like- How dumb is that? To, to be fair, but when it worked, it worked well. You know, like there were times <laughs> when the reactions were good. You know, like Oh, the, the look on Michael's face when I would ask him about something- <laughs> Like, well, that bar didn't. It work. was this combination of like surprise, disgust. disgust. You idiot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but so I, I feel like the audience did enjoy some element of that. Yeah. But it I, was really insane. Carter, if you know what else, I listened to it. So I grew up listening to Howard Stern like my entire life. I know what audience is like. Uh, I know what I like. And so I think that like, and I listen to a ton of podcasts. So I think that we, Josh and I both have a pretty good sense of let's speed up. We're boring the audience. Let's move on. Let's do this differently. And like, I think some people are better than others and like not to brag, but I think we're pretty good at it. Yeah. 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 Speaking of, we just did like uh, 30 minutes on this, podcasting. This is way too much. So, uh, by the way, before I move on, uh, John, did I hit my F-bomb uh, ceiling? Because you're the guy bleeping these out. It's enough. Like I think, for, I think I hit it for how, you. How many uh, do I have left? How many do I have left? For example, Cardiff, we've got. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say he jokes, but we literally do keep a list of f bombs. <laughs> no, I know that. <laughs> so, so we've got we've got three more topics, but like it's enough. We've, we're, we're we're eighty minutes into this. Let's yeah, do, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do this fast. I was gonna say when I was listening to your podcast before, I was like, this thing's an hour and a half. I was like. That's, I mean, that's what halfway through a Scorsese movie is there. That's right. Do we take breaks? I, I thought you were going to like give me a, a red cup to pee in halfway through or let's, something. Let's <laughs> let's blaze through this really quickly. Okay. I'm okay. not I'm not going to talk about. I was going to talk about Jay Z doing a sports betting license next time. Next time, I was going to talk about Steve Cohen owning the Mets and sending tweets about how much they <laughs> suck. That was something. Uh, you have a take, You must have a take on that. You've been covering hedge funds and. I mean. You, you can't expect these guys to have like a hands-off approach, right? None of them does. Does, None of does them. Mark Cuban have a hands-off approach? No. Does Josh Harris at the seventy? But putting his own team like- on blast on Twitter <laughs> seems yeah. like even next, next, next level. Look at yeah. that. Look at that. Read, that. read the tweet, Josh. All right. This is Steve Cohen's tweet. I swear he sent this. August 18th. They just missed the playoffs, by the way. <laughs> It's hard to understand how professional hitters can be this unproductive. <laughs> the best teams have a more disciplined approach. The slugging and uh, what percentage? Uh, base plus slugging. Yeah. Oh, all right. Numbers don't – whatever. 17,000 likes, 6,500 uh, retweets, all from Queens. Listen, uh, <laughs> this is a guy that could literally make his traders trade better. You know how he did it? You're fired. Yeah. Like literally, you lost money this month? You're fired. Do you ball really players do that. respond that well to that kind of pressure? No. Who, you know? who does? Like, nobody does. Like, I, so. That's a very understated way of saying I don't understand why you suck. By right? the way, that's, that's what he wrote. Right, who, who's right, the, right, oh, now right. try harder. Yeah, no, like, yeah, do better. Hit you know? better. Oh shit, that never occurred to me. Yeah, I should just right. if I just hit better, then we'll win more games. <laughs> right. That's it. So I think uh, in the next Moneyball, 
I think Cohen's going to learn a little bit about the difference between um, motivating traders through fear of losing yeah. eight-figure income versus motivating multimillionaire uh, athletes who could very easily take a 250 batting average and join I, another team. I will say this in case we don't get to the favorite section. Oh, we're getting Oh, we're doing okay, it. Okay, well, then I'll save <laughs> We're going to go there next, <laughs> okay. actually. It's sports-related. Go ahead. You, why, don't you, why, don't you, why don't you lead it off? Well, I was just going to say that, like, one, like, I've always been a little bit skeptical of the usual talking points about why sports are great, like, for kids in terms of, like, instilling discipline and teamwork and all that stuff, right? I think sports are great for kids because they're fun, right? Um, but I've always been a little bit skeptical of the typical story. But what I do think sports are great at is teaching us lessons about how an organization handles a situation where there is a constant tension between individual motivations and collective motivations, right? And so I think this idea of like Stephen Cohen like going out there and putting his team on blast, right? I think that like this is gonna be a thirty for thirty someday. I'm curious. I'm just curious if like he thought about like all of the different you know psychological components to it because my favorite thing to share this week was a very short clip between Kevin Durant and Draymond Green discussing I just, I, a huge argument um, that they had last or two seasons ago, right, during a game, which ended up leading Kevin Durant to leave the team, yeah. right? And in that three-minute clip, there's an absolutely massive wealth of insight about, you know, the need, the need sometimes for immediate confrontation, about, like, what an organization should do about facilitating sort of, you know, collaboration and confrontation, how it can go too far, especially if it's going to be punitive, what its responsibility should be anyways in terms of providing the environment to solve problems versus actually like pushing people to do it themselves, but also the kind of fascinating insight about what happens when two people are face to face and how suddenly something that really was a problem between the two of them gets sort of sent off to something else. Like they've deflected the blame onto a third party because now they're in person. Right. I mean, they blame, I, this, the, they blame this, the team now. Like, this changed the trajectory of the whole league. Yeah. Right. In a massive way. And it was this small thing that probably could have been fixed within a couple of days. Things like this happen all the time. But I think a lot of people aren't alert to them. And if all you see in that interaction between the two of them was like some like old beef between two guys and them settling it, then like you're not paying close enough attention to what a fascinating like, you know, heap of insights you, you should draw from that. I thought this entire uh, conversation was incredible. I um, I actually was watching it. Well, let, people don't even know what we're talking about. Draymond Green and Kevin Durant had an argument on the court. KD ended up going to Brooklyn, um, and they had won a they had won their rings already, right? A couple of them, two yeah. of them, yeah. So the interaction was basically Draymond interviewing Kevin Durant, but then they get into this fight that they had, and I think they in the end. They blame the team. Yeah. And how the team handled it. Yeah. Forcing trying to force one of them to apologize to the other, uh, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Okay. So so Kevin said that the team just didn't even want to acknowledge that it happened, which was like really awkward and bizarre. Yeah. Um and uh and then Bob Maya they they tried to force Draymond to apologize, which is equally bizarre. That, that yeah. doesn't work. Easily well. stupid. And yeah. it just it just completely splintered. And it's a shame because I loved watching them play basketball together. I like I've never had so much fun watching the Warriors play. A lot of people hated it. I mm -hmm. was not one of those people, but I certainly can understand why people did hate it. And this this is what I was going to highlight as my favorite, but it also jives with what I'm going to go with, which is seeing being able to see behind the curtain with podcasts is something that we were never able to do. And I can't imagine as a child 
being such a huge basketball fan, what I would have given to see Patrick Ewing talk about the game or the missed finger roll. Two former or, or no, imagine if Jordan and Pippen did a podcast together two years after uh, Jordan retired right, from yeah. basketball. So I think I think we're so lucky to be able to see behind the curtain like this. And similarly, Tracy and Joe also had Bob Kaplan on. And to be able to hear from people like this, I just love podcasts. I just think it's just such a great medium. It's so much better than radio. Um, so I think we're really lucky to have this. Yeah. yeah. Bob Kaplan, who is on the Fed and currently dissenting, like wants he wants to taper now, right? Yeah, he's one of the more hawkish members. I of, loved uh, hearing him talk about that. Like yeah. if you're just a casual market observer and you're not really in the minutes, like you don't get to yeah. see that stuff or yeah. hear that stuff. And to hear him and questioning from like genuine experts like Joe and Tracy, right? It's like great. it's a it's a it's a really special thing that, that we all have access to. So and, and, you know, and so. also uh Draymond was was is really talented. I mean he's he's on TNT a lot, but yeah, he's I mean he's going right into that right into oh, the chair. A hundred percent. I mean I like watching him play, but I wouldn't yeah. mind if he just went started doing that right now. Yeah, he's he, that good. He's, so terrific. I see he's, him terrific. he's less yeah. of a clown than Bark like he's maybe slightly less entertaining right. than Barkley, but still very entertaining he's and terrific. articulate about yeah. basketball. And he's in the game right now. So, like, I think some of those guys on TNT, who I love, by the way, they never played fun. with the current stars. Yeah. And, and they Draymond don't keep has. up with, like, you know, analytics and things like that, which are half which are the time Shaq doesn't even know yeah. who's on which team. <laughs> which <laughs> is sort like of all running thing about it. Yeah. I heard Draymond yeah. explain, like, he doesn't even really watch NBA when he's not in the game. He watches WNBA because he's like, they're actually running plays that mm -hmm. I recognize from when I played more a more organized version of basketball. Right. So uh, I, I I agree that would be cool. I, I didn't see this whole clip. I just saw the clip that you sent me. Yeah, It's 24 minutes. It's not very long. It's I'm definitely going to go watch, I'm definitely gonna go watch it later. Uh, all right. Uh, do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite uh, this week? Yeah, Tracy and Joe's podcast with Bob Kaplan and Neil Kashkari. And yeah. that was great. Yeah, I mean, they're interviewing like Fed people who are making policy now. Yeah. So like as it that's happens, as, that's right. as good as you. That's yeah. a, shout to uh, Joe and Tracy. Yeah. They're awesome. And you should name the podcast, by the way. It's called Odd Lots. Which is it's so people know, yeah. So they they were part of like you and me and them, like they were part of that early inner circle we were just talking about at the at the top right. of the show. Uh yeah. they were very much there. Joe has big timed all of us though. We don't see him anymore. <laughs> um, which I fully understand. Uh my favorite this week, uh as highbrow as everything Cardiff just went into. No, I'm just kidding. Uh <laughs> Tyler the Creator's new album. Even if you're not a hip hop fan, uh do we have a we have a album cover of that? Shout to Tyler. This, this, this is. Uh, I'm not gonna say masterpiece, but I think it's my favorite uh, sleeper hit of the summer. If you listen to hip hop, or even if you don't, basically Tyler is in a place where he has too much money to be rapping about what other people are rapping about, and he's traveling the world. Well, what is this? Is this shtick? No, dude. He's a genius. He really is genius. Um, he what, are, what are you? What are, what are we looking at? Uh, I'm looking at this picture. This looks like I can't tell what's going on here. If this is shtick or not, I don't know this. I don't know this person, bro. He will put a bullet <laughs> through through your left eye. Uh, basically, call me if you get lost. It's a uh, the theme is like I'm traveling. Yeah, and yeah, like he's not he's not in the streets like dodging bullets or doing any of that stupid shit. He's not in strip clubs. Like he is literally traveling around the world and opening his eyes to things that as a kid he couldn't have imagined. And there's a lot of great features on it, like Lil Wayne pops up and DJ Drama. So if you're not, even if you're like not really a rap fan, this is like at a level that you could definitely appreciate it. So I highly recommend. Call me if you get stop laughing. Uh, perfect, at pictures of Tyler. Perfect for These end pictures of are awesome. 
He is awesome. Um, all right, that's that's all we got to the, uh, this week. So we want to make sure that everybody checks out the new bazaar. You can download that on all yes. podcast platforms. Do you guys have a website for that yet? Uh, that should be up a little bit after Labor Day. Okay, you got to find somebody that just left a big company and, and, and hire them to build your website. Actually, the person who's building our website is someone who works on his own, too. So man, it's I, a completely Fishered workspace. Man, I would hope so. <laughs> uh, all right, for the latest in financial blogger fashion, don't forget to check out idontshop.com. Uh, we're going to have some new stuff up there pretty soon. If you haven't gotten your official The Compound and Friends merchandise, I don't really know what you're waiting for. Uh, go ahead and do that. Uh, New Animal Spirits, every Monday, every Wednesday morning with Michael and Ben, my favorite financial podcast personally. Um, And so make sure you check out that. I want to say thank you to Cardiff. Thanks to John. Thanks to Duncan. Guys did an awesome job this week. And uh, Cardiff is hiring. So if things things don't work out here for one reason or the other. Send us uh, the resumes. Absolutely. All right. Hey, uh, thanks for listening. We'll get back to you uh, next, uh, next week. We're off. But we'll be back in two weeks. Is that right? We have a break this week. What awesome. are you guys going to do with the break? We'll see. Yeah. All no, right. No I don't big plans. I'll well, be... It is my birthday next week. Though. Is it? Yeah. August we'll, we'll have the birth, the Duncan's birthday show a week later. I'm going to be in California. I can't record. So, all right. All right. Thanks, everybody. Do you, feel, do you feel warmed up now? Are you ready to do yeah, this? Yeah, let's do this. Let's go. Let's go. It's going to be